Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 14th. It is the morning in California, a Monday morning. So happy Monday to everyone who's watching live and um, happy wherever you are, whenever you are, if you're not watching this live. Um, two issues, it seems, are dominating the news at the moment. Um, uh, the first um, it remains technology. Uh, late last week, a U.S. Congress announced that an aggressive uh, anti-regulation, antitrust bill, a bipartisan against Google, Facebook, Amazon, uh, Apple, et al. Um, uh, meanwhile, the tech barons, our new masters, continue to reshape not just the world, but the universe. Bezos and Musk, two of the richest men in tech, are now... Uh, uh, scrambling in, in, in one uh, in one headline from the Observer, scrambling for space supremacy. It's as if uh, as if controlling the world isn't enough. They also uh, need to control uh, space. Meanwhile, um, technology continues to reshape the world. Bitcoin is the talk of the town out here in Silicon Valley. There was a piece in the New York Times, an op-ed, uh, The Brutal Truth About Bitcoin in the New York Times last uh, weekend, which suggests that it's all very well romanticizing Bitcoin, but it's actually a, a technology which is enabling illicit activity. It is empowering the dark web. Uh, meanwhile, uh, just as technology is shaping, reshaping the world, so... Uh, the issue of democracy and the fragility and the resourcefulness of Western democracies remains in the headlines. Uh, President Biden, of course, was in the UK for a G7 meeting. And in that, um, he talked about uh, uh, the evidence, I'm not sure where it is, of the strength of all the world's democracies in tackling hard problems. Again, taking a quote from Biden himself. I'm not so sure about that. Still lots of fear about the fate of Western democracies. The influential New York Times columnist, conservative one, Ross Douthat, um, asks uh, uh, last week, are we destined for a Trump coup in 2024? And certainly, um, uh, and certainly there's a lot of pessimism about the fate of American democracy, particularly in terms of the so-called voting reforms uh, in Texas and Florida and elsewhere. So the fate of democracy, the fate of technology, two perennial themes we had on the show, always dominating the headlines. And it's an ideal time to talk about them both. Um, George Zakardakis is the author of Cyber Republic, Reinventing Democracy in the Age of Intelligent Machines, I think George is, uh, and, and I don't want to give him a label, but he's a relatively optimistic guy, certainly more optimistic than I am about using new technology to strengthen democracy. Uh, George, 
Can we trust our tech overlords, the Bezoses, the Gates, the guys who run Facebook and Google to strengthen democracy? Or is the crisis of democracy today a consequence of uh, an increasingly tech-saturated, dominated world? Thank you, Andrew. Uh, I think I can answer this question by saying we shouldn't expect the big tech to bring change to this. The big tech, if anything, they're lobbying for uh, business as usual and the minimal impact on the business models by regulators and legislators. So I don't think the change will come from here, from, from, that, from that place. I think what we are grappling with is a big disruption of the liberal democratic design that has been put in place since, I don't know, since the 18th century perhaps, that is set in such a way as to provide a certain political stability, if you like, and key to that political stability is that most citizens, in fact, the vast majority of citizens, should not be involved into politics in any way. They should stay away from politics and leave politics uh, to the politicians, right? So that's the big design about liberal democracy. What happened, however, in the last few years because of technology, technology gave an opportunity, a forum, the means to everyone to start getting involved in, in political discourse. You know, you and I may not like what people say, but you know what? This is what real democracy looks like. It looks like chaos, right? And I think that force of real democracy, as it clashes with the design of liberal democracy, that, as I said, the key to the design is to exclude people from having opinions and just, you know, every four years or so, go and vote somebody and then go back to sleep is what is creating this, this big problem. It is a problem by any means, but I think it's important to understand what's going on here, right? Uh, and I think it's a combination, as I said, of, of technology and, and people getting more and more involved into, into having an opinion and, and wanting to do something about the world they live in. Uh, George, uh, as, as many people can guess, perhaps from your accent or certainly from your name, you're Greek, so uh, and you borrow a lot of wisdom from uh, your forebearers of antiquity. You note in the book that we are at a tipping point in history. I've heard that one before. We've heard it countless times since the Greeks of antiquity. Are we really at a tipping point or does every society believe it's a, a tipping point? They imagine uh, this has never happened before. Now we can shape the future like we've never had the opportunity before. You know, you're doing it with digital technology. We did it with industrial technology. You talk about Web 3.0. We did it in Web 1.0 and Web 2.0. What's so unique about the so-called tipping point or the words you use, the tipping point in 2021? So I think there are two major events happening at the same time. One is, geopolitically speaking, we are transitioning from a more or less unipolar world where uh, the West and mostly the United States were the dominant power into a more fragmented geopolitical world where there are contenders to US supremacy. So I think that is a very, very important uh, change since, let's say, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. So that's one big event. But that's not the only thing that's happening. 
What's also happening is we are at the beginning of a, of a new industrial revolution, uh, a change in, in the economic model, if you like, of, of our economy. And that's because of those new technologies, such as artificial intelligence, data, Internet of Things, and quantum computing and, and everything else. You, you call this uh, Web 3.0. It's a sort of a, a peer-to-peer uh, moment in, in the history of technology. Is that fair? Perhaps you could explain a little bit more about what you mean by peer-to-peer and Web 3.0. Of course. So, you know, a few years ago, there was... Um, it was another term that was used, it was called smart web. So web 3.0 is sort of, you know, words that people use in order to mean various things. So if I was to sort of summarize the philosophy from it is we need to find a way whereby we shift the balance of power in the digital economy, which currently squarely sits with a big centralized tech companies such as Google, Apple, you know, Amazon, what they do, as you yeah, know. Our, uh, our new uh, overlords, uh, the, the Bezoses, the, the men who are now worth, what, hundreds of billions of dollars, unimaginable wealth, uh, perhaps the richest men in history in many ways. Um, absolutely. And what the, those companies do, and other companies as well, they are uh, essentially monetizing our data. Okay. And if you extrapolate as more and more companies are digitally transforming their models and they're using algorithms and data, the future data economy, by future I don't mean like in 50 years, in the next 10 to 20 years, will mean that more and more of the wealth that's going to be created in, uh, in our world will be created by the algorithms, whilst at the same time it will reduce the need for human workers. So you have you know, very valuable companies making a lot of money out of data with very few workers. And you can see that clearly in the big tech companies today, but that's what, how everybody's going to look like in the future. So that leaves the rest of society at a loss. I mean, what, what are we going to do? What are our children going to do? You know, how are we going to have meaningful income? Are we going to become, everyone's going to become an underclass? And, and I think that is the big issue here. Uh, the big issue is that once you've got so much income inequality, when you have societies without any middle class, and what you have is like they're super rich and everybody's super poor, you know, political stability goes out of the window. Either you have a, a plutocracy, like you see, for example, in, in Russia or countries like that, where the very rich completely control society and everybody's very poor. And let's remind yeah. ourselves that the, the, even the word plutocracy was a, an invention of, uh, of, of, of ancient Greece. Uh, so we, we inherited a lot of this language. This is not the first time in history that incredibly rich people have dominated our political life. Absolutely. And, you know, in many ways in the United States, this is exactly what's happening, but at least there are some checks and balances, if you like, in the system, right? It's still, you know, there are ways actually to, to check some of that balance to a certain extent. But, you know, I'm doing some, something completely different now. So there is clear, a clear danger that our political systems will collapse, and that is, means that we're going to be losing our freedoms and liberties, you know, constitution out of the window. And this is the real threat that I'm trying to sort of address in my book, if you like. I'm trying to think, you know, how can we repurpose technology? How can we rethink our political institutions, if you like, which were designed at the time where the, where the technology was the printing press, right? How can we modernize our institutions for a time where we have, you know, artificial intelligence, we have cloud computing, 
you know, all the other things that we have. And more importantly, we have ways for people to actively participate in the political process, which, as I said, is really what, disrupt, what is disrupting democracies now. This is what disrupting, you know, people having opinions. And this is really what's changing our democracies right now. Well, our direct, yeah. So, uh, George, one of the things I like about the book is you suggest that... Um, that we're moving towards, we in the West, and I'm quoting you here, are moving towards the future at three different speeds. Um, what does that mean? And, and who are the three groups moving towards the future at such different uh, speeds? So I think this is evident from, from lots of the data that come from surveys where they ask people how they feel about the pace by which technology is moving forward. Right. And in the data, you'll see that many people have anxiety about technology. They can't catch up with technology. Um, you know, you mentioned before Bitcoin and blockchain. It's been around for 10 years at least. And yet, you know, I, I meet people every day that ask me, what is Bitcoin and what is blockchain? Right. Trying to get their heads around that. So what we have is an avant-garde, if you like, of technologies moving really, really fast and continuously innovating around those technologies, okay? And there's a lot of capital that's thrown at those startups, okay? And they are, in fact, shaping the world. But what happens is they're shaping the world in the way that they want, without really engaging meaningfully with society at large. And I think this is a big problem. You see this problem, for example, in legislation. Okay. So legislation regulation is when, after lots and lots of conversations, politicians come together to consensus and, and they create legislation to regulate uh, the digital economy. A typical example is GDPR, for instance, in Europe, where it's all about data privacy. Very good legislation, fine, good intentions. But when it was built, it was built all like, you know, looking at technology in the rear view mirror. Right? Technology has already moved beyond what GDPR is. So, so very briefly, George, so we've got the technologists moving at the speed of light, and then we have, who, who are the other two groups? So you have, you know, legislators and regulators trying to catch up with that, and most regulators and legislators usually come from humanities, uh, which means they are very challenged to understand the technology in the detail. They understand it at a very superficial level, so they don't understand it very deeply, they don't have that deep insight that technologists have, and that's a problem in itself. And then you had everybody else, right? The media and everybody else, and especially the people who are feeling very anxious. For example, many people feel that AI is going to steal their jobs, right? How that translates... They would be entirely wrong, would they? No, I don't think they're wrong. Absolutely. I don't think they're wrong. I think they're absolutely right, actually. So, uh, we have, um, so George, we have a, a system of enormous disruption. We have growing inequality we have technology out of control and yet you remain an optimist you begin the book uh you 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 dedicate the book to your parents your greek parents constantine and helena and then you quote robert f kennedy there are those that looks at things the way they are and ask why i dream of things that never were and ask why not um it's interesting that you bring up uh rfk he was also um featured very strongly in a new book by Tim Jackson, Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism, in which Jackson built his whole narrative around him. We had Jackson on the show. What makes you, George, an optimist? I would have thought with your 
technological sophistication, with your understanding of these new technologies and these new companies, indeed with your Greek background, with your experience of the political meltdown in Greece, you would have been a pessimist. You wouldn't be quoting Robert F. Kennedy. You would be quoting people who fear the future. So, um, so on pessimism and optimism, you know that pessimists are usually right. Okay, so I, I choose to be an optimist just in case I'm right. Uh, so with that caveat, I can tell you that it's because I, I think I understand the potential of technology to change life for the better that I remain an optimist. And let me explain to you what I mean. Again, you know, going back to the tipping point that we discussed just before, Andrew, about this fourth industrial revolution, what that means, right? You know, the first industrial revolution we had machines that uh, essentially acted as, as multipliers of, uh, of physical strength. Okay, and now we have machines that can act as multipliers of, of our cognitive strength, uh, AI machines. Uh, this translates, economically speaking, to the potential of our societies to enter an era of economic abundance, essentially. You know, think of AI systems, for instance, that can help us design materials that are 100% efficient in converting solar energy to electric energy, right? Or think of you know, us designing molecules and nanomaterials that can help us essentially protect Earth and, and solve the energy problem. All those things are possible because we will have this enormous computing power at our hands. So this is a huge, huge opportunity for, for the whole of humanity. It's how we manage this and how we infuse it with the right moral values, if you like, that will decide whether the end game is a dystopia of state and uh, corporate surveillance or perhaps a utopia of people being free to choose what they want with their lives and, and living long, happy, healthy lives. Okay, so this is the tipping point and the crossroad I'm referring to in my book. And this is the time, the time to make those choices and actively, if you like, um, build for that better future that I'm, I'm, I'm aspiring to. George, your book uh, comes with an ear, a forward by my old friend Don Tapscott. He and I have been involved in a an ongoing debate for the last 15 or 20 years about this stuff. Um, he's an optimist like you. Uh, he has, of course, become one of the world's leading authorities, if not the leading authority, and certainly optimist on, on blockchain. How central is the blockchain to your vision of the future, to Web 3.0, to this uh, networked mutualism that you think can can change the world so dramatically. Absolutely. So there are several features of blockchain that I think are really, really important to understand and um, and help people rethink, for example, business models and, and what business can mean in this in this future world. So right now, for example, we have private most of the businesses that we have are privately owned businesses that have you know goals that are very focused on profitability, et cetera, et cetera. And we know how, you know, how good this is in terms of creating profits, but how bad that is in terms of social outcomes. And if we think about the future, I think what blockchain provides us with are means in order to change completely the governance of the future uh, digital uh, platforms. Like think, for instance, you know, an Uber, which is a hugely valuable company run by its own drivers. So, so we can think of, um, models such as cooperatives, if you like. Yeah, yeah. you call them, uh, I was intrigued, you call 
Web 3.0 crypto networks can be peer-to-peer -peer networks that resemble mutual organizations, and I'm quoting you here, such as mutual organizations such as cooperatives or mutual insurance companies. Um, and indeed, uh, George, we have the labor thinker and, and activist uh, Sarah Horowitz on the show. Her, her family has a history of labor activism, union activism in the United States. Her new book, Mutualism, talks about labor organization in the 21st century. How much can these, what you call um, Web 3.0 crypto networks, learn from 20th and 19th century labor organizations? So I think there's huge potential to, uh, to take those ideas from, from the past and repurpose them from, for the future. Uh, crypto networks enable uh, sort of to implement in digital platforms concepts such as uh, crypto coins. Essentially, what that means is that you can distribute the value that's created by this platform more equitably to everyone who participates in the platform. That to give you an example, if you can imagine a platform like that being run like the Uber, for example, you know, if I am uh, choosing to use that uh, Uber Web 3.0 platform, and by using by using that cooperative, not only I get the service, and of course I pay for the service. But by, by participating as a customer to that, to that platform, I can increase the value of my crypto coins that I have purchased for that particular platform. What that means is that all the value that has been created by those digital platforms is shared more equally to whoever uses, uses them or works in them. Uh, or, or where is I, I mean, I, I buy some of this stuff, George. It makes logical sense, but there's no evidence of any of these things coming into being. Uber now is worth uh, hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, these Bitcoin and blockchain uh, platforms and companies are now worth billions, sometimes tens or hundreds of billions of dollars of, 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 of value. It's all part of the same old story. Where's any evidence that anything is changing in, 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 in this third stage of the digital revolution? So I think there's a lot of work. Not I think, I, I know for a fact there's you know, a lot of work currently taking place in building the fundamental blocks of this so-called Web 3.0, which is all about you know, having your own digital identity, you know, being able to own your own data, being able to participate in those peer-to-peer -peer networks. So those fundamental blocks have been built right now. But what does that mean? Uh, I mean, meanwhile, these companies are worth more and more money. Meanwhile, the Googles and the Facebooks who are trading our, our data to make more and more money. So I don't see any evidence of that. Maybe it's being built, but they're not going to have any impact. Oh, we'll see about that. Uh, you know, if those companies that you're referring to, uh, you know, started with a couple of guys having a great idea, right? And this is exactly what we're living now. Uh, if history is any any guide, you know, there's those big companies will be disrupted sooner or later. Currently, in the technology that I'm referring in the book, we are certainly at the pre-adoption stage. Uh, there is still a lot of work that needs to take place, uh, a lot of lessons to be learned. Uh, these things take time. Uh, it's not like, you know, uh, it takes like one year to, to, to completely change the world. It, it will take time, but I think that we will see a major disruption of these big uh, business models that, uh, you know, the incumbent uh, big tech companies being disrupted in the next 10 years. I buy very, that. I, I think you're probably right, but I, I'm not convinced that it's going to be by your platforms. 
one of the things I like about the, the book, George, is that um, you learn a lot from the street. You say, um, uh, in, in terms of the crisis of representative democracy, you learned a lot from what happened in Athens and in Greece after the financial meltdown of, the, of, of 2008. Uh, what did you learn from Greece and why should that be inspiring to us in terms of the direct democracy of the street in response to the financial crisis in, in, in Greece? So I think I've learned two things. First of all, that politics is, is very important to just leave to the politicians. Uh, I think the example of Greece and not just Greece, Spain and the other countries, Portugal, around Europe, Ireland, was that uh, decisions that were taken by the politicians did not take into account um, the repercussions that will have to on citizens. So those repercussions were you know, paid by the citizens and the politicians just didn't have to pay anything. So politics is very important, number one lesson. And number two lesson, going back to what I mentioned before, is that we need to change our political systems to become more participatory. We can't, I think, in the 21st century, uh, keep um, having the kind of political system that requires citizens not to be involved in politics. We just can't have that anymore. Uh, it's, not, it's not working anymore. We need to completely change it. And in the book, again, I'm suggesting several ways where our, our system of government can be more transparent and more participatory. I'm not suggesting, by the way, that we should change it and become a direct democracy. Uh, and I have reasons not to think that it's a good idea. But we would certainly be better off by uh, having more ways of citizens to directly participate and influence uh, policymaking. George, I run another show called How to Fix Democracy, so I've spent a lot of time talking about this stuff. One area that I thought about, and actually we made a film about it, was citizen assemblies. You write about citizen assemblies too. Uh, you write at the end of the book, citizen assemblies need to become a new liberal institution embedded in the policy decision-making at every level of government. Uh, citizen assemblies seem to be increasingly becoming uh, the buzz term for people who want to reform and reinvent our democracies. Explain what they are and why they're so important. So a citizen assembly is uh, the selection of a representative group of citizens. The, that group is given a task, a specific task to deliberate. They deliberate that task and they have the liberty to uh, learn about uh, the issues that this task and this task entails. And the end game of that process is that the citizen assembly comes to get into consensus about a set of recommendations. Uh, citizen assemblies are usually commissioned by uh, local government or national governments or indeed international organizations in order to bring insights of lived experience into very complex issues like, uh, you know, for instance, in Ireland, uh, constitutional matters like same-sex marriage and abortion all the way to uh, how, come, how governments should manage nuclear energy as it's happening in South Korea all the way to what happened in France, for example, with the Yellow Vest uh, uprising and how France uh, as a country should be more inclusive. So the big advantage, there are several big advantages of citizen assemblies. Number one is that those citizens are not professional politicians. So the assembly has a start and an end. 
that means that the citizen has no vested interest in, you know, having a career as a politician. That changes the whole dynamics of the conversation. That's number one. Number two is that by being true representatives of their fellow citizens, it creates a bond of empathy between them and the citizens that follow the deliberations of the, of the citizen assembly. And that, it has been proven, creates broad consensus within society, especially when the issues that the citizen assembly deliberates on are, are highly polarized. Like, for example, you know, same-sex marriage, um, you know, abortion rights, nuclear energy, etc., etc. In those situations, when we have a highly polarized society, citizen assemblies can play a, a really important role in bringing everyone together. Uh, George, you remind everyone that uh, democracy and liberalism aren't the same thing. You, you ask, what exactly do we mean by democracy anyway? I thought about that in, in terms of your book. Uh, you seem to sometimes flirt with the idea of te technocracy, of reform from above using technology. So you have ideas like unleashing growth by encrypting citizen ID. Um, are there ways in which we need more technocracy? Uh, there need to be wise men like yourself instituting these regimes, uh, these reforms. Um, or are you wary of technocracy? There are two forces in the world today threatening democracy, I think. Uh, the first is technocracy and the second is populism. So I'm not at all in, in favor of technocracy or any kind of, you know, elitist um, power. Um, and I think that is, is evident from my book. On, you know, on the contrary, I'd like to imagine ways where you don't need, you know, people can self-organize and, uh, and find solutions to their problems. And technology can be used in order to help that happen. See, right now we live in societies where, you know, it's, you know, power comes from the top, right? We don't, it's very challenging to have grassroots movements within our societies that are, you know, very effective. So one reason for that is that uh, technologies are controlled from the top. Uh, you mentioned before, you know, the big tech companies and the centralized models. So how can we change that? How can we shift that asymmetry of power and, and put power in the hands of the people? Um, and that's what I'm suggesting in the book. And that's where technology can help. Uh, on the subject of citizen identity and digital identity, I think this sits at the heart of the matter. If you look at, uh, you know, systems in smart cities that are, you know, pushed by authoritarian regimes, it's all about uh, citizen surveillance and control, right? How do we uh, do facial recognition of citizens, how we control crowds, etc., etc. These technologies have, unfortunately, the power to completely make our, our systems of government even more authoritarian. So how do we break out of that? Uh, we have to think, to find the solutions, we need to think in terms of technology as well. I'm not saying technology is the only way we should think about it. We should also think about institutional reform and, and legislation, but technology is very key here as well. If, the, if for example, we are, we are going to design a smart city, okay, this smart city will have institutions and ways of government, but it will have a technology layer as well. And that technology layer should be designed so that it prevents surveillance and that's where the technology comes into play and that's where ideas from the book hopefully uh come in, 
will come useful to those that design uh, the smart citizen for the future. Uh, George, as I said, you, you quote uh, Robert F. Kennedy at the beginning of your book about dreaming of things that never were and asking why not. Uh, you might have also quoted uh, uh, John Lennon. Uh, you end the book, you say, I will also argue we need to think of the future as a place where everyone has enough time and wealth to participate in politics and then use the appropriate sets of technologies um, to get us there quickly. Um, very briefly, to, to end this conversation, George, imagine that time. I mean, maybe we can believe it. Maybe we, we can't. I'm a little skeptical. You're less skeptical. But imagine a world where we are, in your language, uh, where we have enough time and wealth to participate in politics. What would this world look like? So I think it would probably look a lot like maybe classical Athens. Um, I think the, the question that I'm trying to address towards the end of the book is if indeed the future is one of abundance, if, for example, the time that we spend today in order to work that, me, that we need to do in order to, to make a living, that amount of time is no longer, you know, used for work. What are we going to do with that extra time? How are we going to find fulfillment in our lives? And to that question, which I think is a very important question to, to ponder, my answer is that we should think about how we get ourselves involved in society, in our communities, how we build bonds with one another, and how we discuss politics, how we take collective decisions. And is that civic consciousness and that civic role that we discover what a citizen really means in democracy? That I what think happens if we don't want to? What happens if we just want to play video games? I think people should do whatever they like. They want to do to, absolutely. I'm not. I don't think we should impose anyone to do anything at all. But some people may find playing video games fulfilling, and others don't want. So I'm, I'm addressing the needs of those who think that there's life beyond video games. Well, there certainly is life beyond video games. Uh, uh, George uh, Zarkadakis's new book, Cyber Republic: Reinventing Democracy in the Age of Intelligent Machines, is a really uh, intelligent book uh, dealing with intelligent technology. Uh, George sees everything. Uh, I'm not sure I share all his optimism, but he's very good at diluting the issues and co and cohesively presenting them to a public that may not be quite as sophisticated as as others when it comes to big tech. George, um, congratulations on the book. Uh, you are just outside Zurich at the moment in these strange times. I know. Europe is still probably more locked down than the U.S. in a post-COVID age. In addition to your new book, uh, Cyber Republic, what else might people read um, while they're still stuck inside? Well, they can read my previous book, which is called In Our Own Image, and it's all about the history of artificial intelligence and the philosophy of artificial intelligence. I hope they may find it uh, useful. It talks about you know how literature and movies have actually shaped the way that technologists are thinking about Artificial, artificial intelligence and developing artificial intelligence. So, so maybe this should pick another mind as well, if they like cyber republic. Good. Well, George uh, Zakadakis, um, author of Cyber Republic, lovely to talk to you. Keep well, and we will talk more, I think, in the future about uh, these uh, the, the the mutualism of Web three point It's a it's a wonderfully seductive idea and if it's realized we'll all be happy if it isn't we won't 
but uh, probably the reality is we'll be both simultaneously happy and unhappy, which should generate a lot more content for new shows. George, thank you so much. Keep well. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you.